Hello everyone, your host Ariel here with a very quick note. My editor, Scott Hill, and I started Fairy Tale as a passion project and as an escape for people in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, well, times are what they are, and we'd both really appreciate it. You'd honestly rock our friggin' socks. If uh, you could stop by our Ko-Fi, K-O-F-I, or Patreon to support us in helping us to continue to bring you these episodes. Uh, you can find those at ko-fi.com slash chaos, C-H-A-O-S underscore Lily, L-I-L-L-Y, or you can donate to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash chaos Lily creations, C-H-A-O-S-L-I-L-L-Y-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S. If you can't, don't worry, that's fine. We'll leave me, we get it. Just leave a quick rating and review to help us get noticed on whatever platform you're listening on. Tell a friend, share us around. Really, if you could just help get the word out, that would be fantastic. We love you all. Stay safe, be well, and let's see what chaos lies in store this episode. Hello, everyone. My name's Ariel. Yes, really. And this is Fairy Tale. quick reminder before I get started, I'll be reading the original unsanitized versions of these stories, and the following may not be suitable for children. Today, first, I'll be reading The Storks, followed by The Daisy. These are two lesser-known stories, although I have read them before, and I will warn you, they're both a little on the dark side. The Storks. On the roof of the last house in a little village was a stork's nest. A mother stork sat in it, and four young ones were stretching forth their little heads with the pointed black beaks, which had not yet turned red like those of the old birds. At a little distance, the father stork stood upright and almost immovable on the ridge of the roof. He had drawn up one leg in order to not quite be idle, while he was watching over his nest like a sentry. He stood so still that one might have thought he was carved in wood. Surely it must look very important that my wife has a sentry before her nest, he thought. Nobody knows that I am her husband. People will think that I am commanded to stand here. That looks so distinguished. And he continued to stand on one leg. A crowd of children were playing below in the street. No sooner had they noticed the storks than one of the pluckiest boys began to sing an old ditty to tease them. Soon all his playmates joined in, but they only repeated what he could remember of it. Fly away, stork, fly away, stand not on one leg all day, while your dear wife in the nest gently rocks her babies to rest. The first little stork they will hang, the second will fry by the fire, the third will be shot with a bang, the fourth will be roast for the squire. Did you hear what those boys are singing? said the young storks. They said we shall be hanged and roasted. Never mind what they say, replied the mother stork. If you do not listen to them, they can do you no harm. The boys went on singing and pointed at the storks with their fingers. Only one of them, named Peter, said that it was wrong of them to tease the birds and did not join them. The mother stork comforted her children. You must not pay attention to them. Look at your father, how quietly he stands there on one leg. Oh, we are so frightened, 
said the young ones, and then they hid their heads in the nest. On the following day, when the children had come out to play and saw the storks, they sang again the song. The third will be shot with a bang, the fourth will be roast for the squire. Shall we really be hanged and roasted? asked the young storks. Certainly not, replied the mother. You will learn how to fly. I shall teach you myself. Then we shall fly into the meadows and go to see the frogs, who will bow to us in the water and cry, Croak, croak, and then we shall eat them up. That will be delightful. And then, asked the young ones, Then, continued the mother stork, all the storks of this country will come together and the great autumn maneuver will be gone through. Every stork must be able to fly well, for that is of great importance. All those who cannot fly, the general kills with his beak. Therefore, you must take great pains to learn it well when the drilling begins. Why, then we shall be stabbed after all as the boys sing. Listen, they are singing it again. Only listen to me and not to them, said the mother stork. After the great autumn maneuver, we shall fly away from here to warmer countries, far away over the mountains and woods. We shall fly to Egypt, where you shall see three-cornered stone houses, and pointed tops of which almost touch the clouds. People call them pyramids, and they are much older than a stork can imagine. There is a river in that country which rises every year over its banks, covering the whole land with mud. We shall walk about in the mud and eat frogs. Oh, how charming, cried the young ones. Yes, indeed. That country is very pleasant. We shall do nothing there but eat all day long. And while we shall be so comfortable there, they will not have a single leaf on the trees in this country. And it will be so cold that the clouds will freeze and fall down on the ground in little white rags. She meant, of course, the snow, but she could not otherwise explain it. Will the naughty boys also freeze to pieces? asked the young storks. No, answered the mother. They will not freeze to pieces, but they will not be very far from it. They will have to stay all day long indoors, in the gloomy room, whereas you will fly about in foreign lands where the warm sun shines and many flowers are blooming. After some time, the young ones had grown so tall they could stand upright in the nest and look about in the neighborhood. The father stork returned every day with frogs and little snakes and all sorts of stork dainties which he had picked up. Oh, it was so funny to see him perform tricks for their amusement. He used to place his head quite back on his tail and clatter with his beak as if it had been a rattle, and then he used to tell them stories about the marshland. Come along, the stork mother said one day. Now you must learn to fly. The four young storks had to come out of the nest onto the ridge of the roof. At first they tottered about a good deal, and although they balanced themselves with their wings, they nearly fell down. You have only to look at me said the mother. You must hold your head like this. Place your feet thus. One, two, one, two. That's right. That is what will enable you to get on in the world. And then she flew a short distance away from them, and the young ones made a little jump, but they fell down in the mud, for their bodies were still too heavy. I do not wish to fly, said one of the young ones, and crept back into the nest. I do not care to go to warm countries. Would you prefer to freeze to death here when the winter comes, or shall the boys come to hang and roast you? I will call them. Oh, no, no, dear mother, said the young stork, hopping out on the roof again to the others. On the third day, they could already fly a little, and now they thought they would be able to soar in the air like their parents. They tried to do so, but they tumbled down and had quickly to move their wings again. 
the boys in the street began to sing again. Fly away, stork, fly away, stand not on one leg all day. Shall we fly down and pick their eyes out? asked the young storks. No, said the mother, do not mind them, only listen to me. That is far more important. One, two, three. Now we turn to the right. One, two, three. To the left. Now, round the chimney top. That was very good indeed. The last clap with the wings was so correctly and well done that I shall let you come tomorrow with me to the marshes. There you will see several respectable storks with their families. You must let them see that my children are the prettiest and best behaved. You must proudly stride about. That will look well, and by this you will gain respect. But shall we not punish those wicked boys? asked the young storks. Let them cry as much as they like. You will rise high into the clouds and fly away to the country of the pyramids while they are freezing, and have not a single green leaf nor a sweet apple. We shall take our revenge upon them, whispered the little ones, and went on practicing. Of all the little boys in the street, none was more bent upon singing the song than the one who had first started it. And he was quite a mite and not more than six years old. And what did they know about the age of children and grown-up people? They made up their minds to take their revenge upon this boy because he was the first to sing the song and was never tired of going on with it. The young storks were very angry with him, and the older they became, the less they would suffer it. At last the mother had to give them the promise that they should be revenged, but not until the day before their departure. We must first see how you will behave at the great maneuver. If you do badly so that the general has to thrust his beak through you, the boys will be right, at least in a way, but let us see. You shall see, said the young ones, and took still greater pains. They practiced every day, and soon they could fly so well that it was a pleasure to see them. Autumn came at last. All the storks began to assemble and to set out for the warm countries to pass the winter. That was the great maneuver. They had to fly over the woods and villages only to see what they could do, for their journey was a very long one. They acquitted themselves so well that they passed the review excellently and received frogs and snakes as a reward. That was the best certificate, and they could eat the frogs and the snakes, which was better still. Now we shall take a revenge, they said. Certainly, cried the mother stork. I have already thought of the best way. I know where the pond is in which all the little children are lying until the storks come and take them to their parents. The pretty little babies sleep there and dream so sweetly, much more sweetly than they will ever dream after. All the parents wish for such a child, and the children wish for a brother or sister. Now we shall go to the pond and fetch one for every child who has not sung that wicked song to tease the storks. But what shall we do to the bad boy who began to sing the song? In the pond lies a little dead baby, who has dreamed itself to death, that we shall take to him. And he will cry, because we have brought him a dead little brother. But the good boy, I hope you have not forgotten him, who said that it was wrong to tease animals. We shall bring him a brother as well as a sister. And as that boy's name was Peter, you shall all henceforth be called Peter. And so it was done, and the storks are all called Peter to the present day. The daisy. Now listen. In the country, close by the high road, stood a farmhouse. Perhaps you have passed by and seen it yourself. 
There was a little flower garden with painted wooden pickets in front of it. Close by was a ditch, and on its fresh green bank grew a little daisy. The sun shined as warmly and brightly upon it as on the magnificent garden flowers, and therefore it thrived well. One morning it had quite opened, and its little snow-white petals stood out around the yellow center like rays of the sun. It did not mind that nobody saw it in the grass, and that it was a poor, despised flower. On the contrary, it was quite happy, and turned toward the sun, looking upward and listening to the song of the lark high up in the air. The little daisy was as happy as if the day had been a great holiday, but it was only Monday. All the children were at school, and while they were sitting on the forms and learning their lessons, it sat on its thin green stalk and learned from the sun and from its surroundings how kind God is. And it rejoiced that the song of the little lark expressed so sweetly and distinctly its own feelings. With a sort of reverence, the daisy looked up to the bird that could fly and sing, but it did not feel envious. I can see and hear, it thought. The sun shines upon me, and the forest kisses me. How rich I am! In the garden close by grew many large and magnificent flowers, and, strange to say, the less fragrance they had, the haughtier and prouder they were. The peonies puffed themselves up in order to be larger than the roses, but size is not everything. The tulips had the finest colors, and they knew it well, too, for they were standing bolt upright like candles that one might see them better. In their pride, they did not see the little daisy, which looked over to them and thought, How rich and beautiful they are! I am sure the pretty bird will fly down and call upon them. Thank God that I stand so near and can at least see all the splendor. And while the daisy was still thinking, the lark came flying down, crying, Tweet! But not to the peonies and tulips. No, into the grass to the poor daisy. Its joy was so great that it did not know what to think. The little bird hopped around it and sang, How beautifully soft the grass is, and what a lovely little flower with its golden heart and silver dress is growing here. The yellow center of the daisy did indeed look like gold, and the little petals shined as brightly as silver. How happy the daisy was, no one had the least idea. The bird kissed it with its beak, sang to it, and then rose up again into the blue sky. It was certainly more than a quarter of an hour before the daisy recovered its senses. Half ashamed, yet glad of heart, it looked over at the other flowers in the garden. Surely they had witnessed its pleasure and the honor that had been done to it. They understood its joy. But the tulips stood more stiffly than ever. Their faces were pointed and red because they were vexed. The peonies were sulky. It was well that they could not speak. Otherwise they would have given the daisy a good lecture. The little flower could see very well that they were ill at ease and pitied them sincerely. Shortly after this, a girl came into the garden with a large, sharp knife. She went to the tulips and began cutting them off, one after another. Ugh, sighed the daisy. That is terrible. Now they are done for. The girl carried the tulips away. The daisy was glad that it was outside, and only a small flower. It felt very grateful. At sunset, it folded its petals and fell asleep, and dreamed all night of the sun and the little bird. On the following morning, when the flower once more stretched forth its tender petals like little arms toward the air and light, the daisy recognized the bird's voice, but what it sang sounded so sad. Indeed, the poor bird had good reason to be sad, for it had been caught and put into a cage close by the open window. It sang of the happy days when it could merrily fly about, of fresh green corn in the fields, and of the time when it could soar almost up to the clouds. 
the poor lark was most unhappy as a prisoner in a cage. The little Daisy would have liked so much to help it, but what could be done? Indeed, that was very difficult for such a small flower to find out. It entirely forgot how beautiful everything around it was, how warmly the sun was shining, and how splendidly white its own petals were. It could only think of the poor captive bird for which it could do nothing. Then two little boys came out of the garden. One of them had a large sharp knife, like that with which the girl had cut the tulips. They came straight towards the little daisy, which could not understand what they wanted. Here is a fine piece of turf for the lark, said one of the boys, and began to cut a square around the daisy, so that it remained in the center of the grass. Pluck the flower off, said the other boy, and the daisy trembled for fear, for to be pulled off meant death to it, and it wished so much to live, as it was to go with the square of turf into the poor captive lark's cage. No, let it stay, said the other boy. It looks so pretty. And so it stayed and was brought into the lark's cage. The poor bird was lamenting its lost liberty and beating its wings against the wires, and the little daisy could not speak or utter a consoling word, much as it would have liked to do so. So the forenoon passed. I have no water, said the captive lark. They have all gone out and forgotten to give me anything to drink. My throat is dry and burning. I feel as if I had fire and ice within me, and the air is so oppressive. Alas, I must die and part with the warm sunshine, the fresh green meadows, and all the beauty that God has created. And it thrust its beak into the piece of grass to refresh itself a little. Then it noticed the little daisy and nodded to it and kissed it with its beak and said, You must also fade in here, poor little flower. You and the piece of grass are all that they have given me in exchange for the whole world, which I enjoyed outside. Each little blade of grass shall be a green tree for me, each of your white petals a fragrant flower. Alas, you only remind me of what I have lost. I wish I could console the poor lark, thought the daisy. It could not move one of its leaves, but the fragrance of its delicate petals streamed forth, and it was much stronger than any such flowers usually have. The bird noticed it, although it was dying of thirst, and in its pain tore up the green blades of grass, but did not touch the flower. The evening came, and nobody appeared to bring the poor bird a drop of water. It opened its beautiful wings and fluttered about in anguish. A faint and mournful tweet-tweet was all it could utter. Then it bent its little head towards the flower, and its heart broke for want and longing. The flower could not, as on the previous evening, fold up its petals and sleep. It drooped sorrowfully. The boys only came the next morning. When they saw the dead bird, they began to cry bitterly, dug a nice grave for it, and adorned it with flowers. The bird's body was placed in a pretty red box, and they wished to bury it with royal honors. While it was alive and sang, they forgot it, and let it suffer want in the cage. And now they cried over it and covered it with flowers. The piece of turf with little Daisy in it was thrown out on the dusty highway. Nobody thought of the flower which had felt so much for the bird and had so greatly desired to comfort it. <sighs> okay, the next one's actually really short, and this episode is a little on the shorter side as well, especially after all the editing is taken care of, so I'm going to quick throw in the buckwheat. There's a lot of plants in these. 
Fair warning, this one is a lesson about pride. The buckwheat. When you pass by a field of buckwheat after a thunderstorm, you will often find it looking blackened and singed, as if a flame of fire had swept over it. Peasants say, the lightning has caused this. But why did the lightning blacken the buckwheat? I will tell you what I heard from the sparrow, who was told by an old willow tree standing near a field of buckwheat. It was a large, imposing old willow tree, although somewhat crippled by old age and split in the middle. Grass and a bramble bush grew in the cleft. The tree was bending down its branches so that they nearly touched the ground, hanging down like long green hair. On the neighboring fields grew corn, not only rye and barley, but also oats, splendid oats, indeed, which look, when they are ripe, like many little yellow canary birds on a branch. The corn was lovely to look at and the fuller the ears were, the lower they were hanging down, as if in godly humility. Close by, right opposite the old willow tree, was also a field of buckwheat. The buckwheat did not bend down like the other corn, but stood proudly and stiffly upright. "'I am certainly as well off as the corn,' it said. "'I am in addition to this much better looking. My flowers are as beautiful as the blossoms of the apple tree. It must be a pleasure to look at me and my companions.' Do you know anything more magnificent than we are, old willow tree? The willow tree nodded its head as if it wished to say, Yes, certainly I do. The buckwheat spread, full of pride, its leaves and said, This stupid old tree, it is so old that grass is growing out of its trunk. Soon a heavy thunderstorm arose. All the flowers in the field folded their leaves or bowed their little heads, while the storm passed over them, but the buckwheat remained proudly standing upright. "'Bend your head as we do,' said the flowers. "'But why should I?' said the buckwheat. "'Bend your head as we do,' said the corn. "'The angel of the storm is approaching. "'His wings reach down from the cloud to the ground. "'He will cut you in two ere you can cry for mercy.' "'But I refuse to bend my head,' said the buckwheat. "'Close up your flowers and bend down your leaves,' cried the old willow tree. "'Do not look up at the lightning when it tears the clouds.' Even mankind can't do that, for while a flash of lightning lasts, one can look into heaven, and that dazzles even mankind. What would then happen to us, the plants of the earth, which are so greatly inferior to men, if we dare do so? Why greatly inferior, said the buckwheat, if you cannot give a better reason, I will look up into heaven. And in its boundless pride and presumption, it did look up. Suddenly came a flash of lightning that was so strong that it seemed for a moment as if the whole world was in flames. When the storm had abated, the flowers and the corn stood refreshed by the rain in the pure, still air, but the buckwheat was burned by the lightning and become a dead, useless weed. The wind moved the branches of the old willow tree so that large drops of water fell down from its green leaves as if the tree was weeping, and the sparrows asked it, why do you cry? Blessings are showered upon us all. Look how the sun shines and how the clouds sail on. Do you not smell the sweet fragrance of flowers and bushes? Why do you cry, old willow tree? Then the old willow tree told them of the pride of the buckwheat and its presumption and of the punishment which it had to suffer. I, who have told you this story, have heard it from the sparrows. They related it to me one night when I asked them for the tale. Thank you so much for listening. As uh, strange as those stories were, please feel free to uh, reach out uh, or leave a review. 
on fairytalereadings at gmail.com or on Facebook at Fairytale Podcast. You can find this podcast on Stitcher and Spotify at time of recording. I'm currently also working on getting this onto TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcast. Um, aside from uh, the occasional continuing aftershock, my roomy brother Fuzz, but Pupper and I are doing okay, holed up in our little apartment during the corona season. And uh, rather than anything else, we ask that you please stay safe and healthy. Remember your social distancing, wash your hands, and uh, please take care of your neighbors, your friends. There are so many people who are suffering because of this pandemic and because of many other reasons besides. Rather than ask for a support of me, a brand new podcast, please instead support them. I'm okay. My sound editor is Scott Hill. The opening music, Passing Beauty by Dan Philipson, was licensed from premiumbeats.com. Thank you again. This is Ariel, swimming off. Scott, hope that isn't too hard for you to go through. Ready for the second one? If you do badly, so the, the, they, and, sorry, lost my place. Okay. Uh, why can't I say that? Turp. They did the, I forgot to read the title. Sorry, Scott. Prr.